Let's bow together and pray. Take the ancient story, O God, and by your miraculous power, bring it to life again. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, the one who opens the eyes of the blind. Amen. I've told before the tale of a man who found the magic lamp and out pops a genie. This genie gave but one wish, and it had a bit of a disclaimer with it. The genie said to the man, I will grant you any wish you desire, but know this. Whatever I give to you, I will be giving to your enemy twofold. The man thought to himself, I would love to ask for riches, but... If I do, my enemy will be twice as rich. I'd love to ask for power, but if I do, my enemy will be twice as powerful. I'd love to ask for strength, but if I do, my enemy will be twice as strong. And a dark smile crossed his face as he commanded the genie, blind one eye. What is it about our human nature that fears other people getting ahead of us? What is it about the Pharisees that prevented them from seeing the miracle and the joy and the beauty of a blind man being able to see? Let me ask you, can you be happy if a competitor gets a promotion and a raise? Let me ask it more specifically. Can UofL fans now celebrate if UK wins the national championship? I'm not asking for an answer. Can Democrats be happy if the economy improves and the Republicans get the credit? Or can Republicans celebrate if the Affordable Care Act, in fact, turns out to be a good thing and the Democrats get the credit? Or I'll ask it even more personally. Could I or Highland give thanks to God if a church that we consider our competitor or other were to do some act of generosity and love and people come to faith? Could we celebrate In other words, can we see more than our own personal agendas? Can we celebrate God's dream in the world, even if the results appear to be a personal demotion? And if not, why not? This healing story from John chapter 9 is a lengthy passage. It uses a lot of ink, but not much of it is used on the actual healing itself. That happens at the very beginning of the story. The majority of the story is about Jesus inviting us to find our way again amidst all of the divisions and competitions. I mean, this is a story that is just filled with division. There's the disciples who start this story. Lord, Rabbi, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he was born blind. They're immediately trying to start a division. There's, of course, the neighbors who ask, is this the man who was born blind, the one that we could feel superior to? Could he be like us now? There's the Pharisees who are also called the Jews. And let me quickly say, everyone in the story are Jews. The Pharisees were one particular group within the Jewish people. People who were not interested in or celebrating the joy of the healing. They are only worried about their position. And so they call for a technical foul. Healing on the Sabbath. There's the parents who fear the alienation that might come if they're put out of the synagogue. And so they distance themselves from their son who is so vulnerable and blind. He's old enough, just just ask him, they ask. And then, of course, the Pharisees again, who revile this man formerly blind, even when he invites them to see this thing in a different light, they chastise him. You were born entirely in sin, and you think you're going to teach us? It is a story dripping with competition, division, posturing, vying for control, everyone trying to to, uh, preserve and protect their own particular turf. And so I want to suggest this morning that it is a story of our world in microcosm. Whether we're talking about nations or religions or your workplace, or schools and teams, or neighborhoods, sometimes within a church, sometimes even within a home. What are we lacking? What causes us to continue to live out of this cycle of competition I often quote the words of Dr. Phil. How's that working for us? We're all keenly aware in the city of Louisville about the mob violence that took place in our downtown this week at the hands of a group of teenagers. I know that we all grieve for uh, the victims of the violence, those who were hurt physically and financially, those who were hurt Psychologically, those who have been terrorized and traumatized. We're concerned for our entire city as we together feel the spiritual violence of this experience. And let me quickly say, I do think we need to hold perpetrators responsible. We need to ask hard questions about families and parents and churches and schools. But we also need to ask, why all of this unfocused anger? What is it that these young people lack? What is it that they innately want that God expressed so inappropriately? I'm on one of the subgroups of the Mayor's Task Force for Safe Neighborhoods, so I hear the need and affirm the need for police protection, for crackdowns on violence. But this morning, as your pastor, I want to ask us if it's possible for us to be blinded 
to what we're, what we're actually seeing. The desperation, the resentment, the sense of futility of a particular group's lot in life, whether we think it's true or not, it is how they are feeling, and it resulted in all of this hostility. I mean, what can we say about the west part of our city if the most exciting thing that they've had to celebrate in the last 10-plus years is the announcement that a new Walmart is going to be built in the very center of their, of their community? Let me ask those of us who live in the Highlands. How excited would we be if a Walmart was built on the corner of Bardstown and Grinstead? We wouldn't think of it. But over there? I'm not blaming us for their plight. I am calling on us as people of faith to be careful and prayerful about how we see and interpret and incorporate these events so that what we conclude reveals not our competition, but our compassion. That we see lovingly and faithfully and clearly Does Jesus really open blind eyes? There's a fascinating story in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3, about two prostitutes who live in the same house. They have a baby, a little boy, have little boys on the same night. But three nights later, one of the mothers accidentally rolls over on her child during the night. The child suffocates and dies. She wakes up in the middle of the night to find her son dead and makes a decision. She's desperate. This is all she has. She switches her dead child with the living child in the bed next to her. The next morning, when the two women awake and the one woman discovers that there's a child dead beneath her, she's greatly distressed until she realizes, this is not my child. Well, of course, the woman who made the switch denies that she did anything, and there an argument ensues to the point that they have to bring in King Solomon. You remember Solomon, the one who prayed for wisdom. Solomon said, both women are claiming the child is hers. I have no way to resolve this except this. Bring me a sword. We will divide the child in half and give half to each mother. I tell that story this morning because I'm afraid that competition and fear and a need to guard our own turf blind us and cause us to split the world like a little baby, to split the world in ways that the world was never intended to be split and the result is not life but death. And so the Pharisees that day They're operating out of fear. They're operating out of their own ego and pride. They're blind to the fact that there's these healing possibilities, this good news of God right there with them. Their eyes are closed to seeing Jesus as anything but a threat to their sense of power and place and privilege. 
even when Jesus is called a prophet by the blind man, the formerly blind man, they can't hear it. They can't hear that he is saying, here is one who has illumined God's truth. Here is one who has come to challenge the falsehoods of this world. Instead, they turn a blind eye to him. And the result is, we have the blind leading the blind. We have those entrusted to lead to make right, to reconcile and unite living in blindness and leading in blindness. What's going on here? As my faith develops over the years, I've come to realize that to talk about Jesus Christ coming into this world to save us means that Jesus Christ came into this world to convert us, to bring us out of the darkness symbolized by this blindness, and to bring us into the light of seeing and healing and changing the world so that we can find our way again. What is it that God intends? God intends that we live in harmony and in wholeness and in unity together. On day one of creation, the very first quotation from the lips of the holy are these, let there be light. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light. And in John chapter 9, Jesus brings this light and life to the blind man and invites the Pharisees and the neighbors and you and me to be open to this possibility of the light. What is this light that illumines the blind eyes? Isn't it the love that God has for each one of us? A love that we don't earn or deserve. A love that's given from the day that we're born. I'm so grateful to our spiritual formation ministry group who has provided for us these little Henry Nouwen booklets Today's reading says, now one says this. I most often live, he admits, as if I have to earn love, to do something noteworthy, and then perhaps I might get something in return. Could I really believe, he asks, that I'm loved first? Independent of what I do, it's an important question. If I think that what I need most, I have to earn and deserve and collect by hard work, I don't get it. And herein, I fear, lies the nub of our problem individually and collectively. We have yet to fully see the great mystery. We tell it to our babies. We remind ourselves at the dedications What is it we say? Before we loved God, God loved us. But six and a half days a week, we live by a different agenda, which is why we come in here again and again and again to call ourselves back to this way. 
to find our way again and to believe that before we loved God, God loved us. It changes everything. As Solomon's sword is raised above that three-day-old baby boy, the real mother, the author says, compassion burning in her, shouts out, Lord, don't kill the baby. Give the child to the other woman. And Solomon sees the love and knows. Give the child to this woman, he says, for she is the mother. You see, love opens blind eyes to who and what needs to be seen in our day. Who is it that we're not seeing these days? Sometimes our blindness is unintentional. I remember the day that our church was having a conversation about homosexuality. And one of the members of our church said, well, frankly, I've never known a person who's homosexual. And the person next to him said, what do you do now? It was unintentional. Sometimes our not seeing is unintentional. Other times our not seeing is in fact intentional. It's because we've created a world that bypasses the places of pain. And so we're always called to ask ourselves, what did I really see today with these eyes that God has given me to see? Not just our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart. What have I seen today? I wonder sometimes if we have selective seeing, much like some of us are accused of having selective hearing. John O'Donoghue says the human eye is always selecting what it wants to see and evading what it doesn't want to see. And so the crucial question becomes, what criteria do I use to decide what I would like to see and to avoid seeing what we don't want to see? So what is it that we're not seeing? And even more, what are we being invited to see? That day Jesus bent down and scooped from the earth, from the humus, and spit the living water into it and mixed it with the stuff of humanity, applied it to the eyes of that blind man that he might see anew. And I imagine that what he saw shocked and changed his life, don't you? Terry Singer is the dean of the Kent School of Social Work at the University of Louisville. He told me a fascinating story recently. He said his brother, who lives in another town, has been interested in uh, the family genealogy, in their family history. And so the brother talked Terry into joining him in having one of those DNA swabs where you take some of your DNA from the side of your mouth and you mail it in and you can find out what your family history, in fact, is. Well, they both did it, put put their tests in an envelope and sent them off. And when the results came back, Terry found out he's not a singer. And I'm not talking music here. 
he found out that the person that he was raised with as his father was in fact not his father. He began to ask some questions, of course. Father and mother both dead, but began to ask cousins, aunts, uncles. He found out from an aunt that while the while Terry's father, the father he was raised with, was overseas in the war, Terry's mother had spent some time with a dentist in Pittsburgh. When I told this on Friday night, one of the women sort of shouted out, Yeah, he got his teeth, she got her teeth cleaned, didn't she? Terry had to come to a new reality. But in that new reality, he got to see something he had never seen before. He discovered that he has a sister who lives in California and a brother who lives in Pennsylvania. They began to correspond and they got together and Terry took one look at this man and said, We look just alike. They sound alike. They walk alike. He's seeing a whole new world. Today in this service, if Jesus applied the mud of living water and humanity to our eyes, I wonder, Might we see new sisters and brothers? Might we discover that people everywhere are our kin? Whether they're in the East End or the West End, whether they're in the West End or they're in the state of Washington beneath the mudslide, whether they're in Lexington or in Washington State or Utah or the Ukraine, we're all connected. And what if this, what if this great mystery is what the good news really is? What if this is what Jesus had in mind when he said to us, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone? Glory to God. Let's pray. Open our blind eyes and give us courage to see. And having seen, give us courage to live and walk in newness of life. To your glory now and forever. Amen.